Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are... Let me start that again. I'm starting that again, folks. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I am thrilled to have Dr. Corey Schuler returning to talk to me. You remember him from the podcasts on the Elemental Diet, and they were really popular. Uh, I know I got a lot of great, great feedback, and Corey packed those podcasts with just really wonderful information. So you can go back onto the podcast page if you haven't listened to them and uh, download them or check out the, the show notes. And um, I'm sure you'll enjoy them if you haven't heard them. Uh, so today we are going to be talking about anxiety and depression, uh, you know, another area that Corey has been working with clinically and just kind of applying that really great brain of his onto. But let me just give you a little bit about him and then we'll jump right into our topic. Uh, Dr. Schuler is the Director of Clinical Affairs for Integrative Therapeutics. He is a board-certified medical affairs specialist, a certified nutrition specialist, licensed nutritionist, registered nurse, and chiropractic physician board-certified in clinical nutrition. He has a lot of initials after his name, actually. You can check out his bio. Uh, he's additionally earned degrees in phytotherapeutics and business administration and has a private integrative practice in uh, Wisconsin. Dr. Schuler is adjunct assistant professor at the School of Health Sciences and Education at New York Chiropractic College. He volunteers for the Board of Certification for Nutrition Specialists, and he's a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine and American College of Nutrition. Corey prides himself on communicating scientific information in the most palatable forms possible as a speaker and writer. Corey, you actually achieve that. Uh, he's a chapter contributor to the Integrative Medical Nutrition Therapy and Disease Prevention uh, and Treatment textbook. Uh, Dr. Schuler, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it's, it. Absolutely. It's really it's great to have you back. Um, today we're going to talk about anxiety and depression, um, which I would say are epidemic. I mean, a significant percentage of my patients present to my office with both of these um, as complaints. Uh, we see them alone. We see them presenting in our patients together. We often see them with other uh, chronic conditions happening. So first of all, talk to me about the underlying uh, potential mechanisms uh, in these conditions and, you know, any comments on why the high incidence as you're moving through these would be great. Sure. Well, in terms of like um, kind of splicing this out, there's a number of reasons probably why we're seeing anxiety and, and depression on the rise. And some of it has to do with lifestyle and environmental factors to be fair. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's probably not what we're going to get into as much. You know, if, uh, if depression is caused by grieving or loss, or if anxiety is caused by um, a traumatic event, um, what we're going to be talking about today could probably be useful in some regard. But honestly, that's usually the territory of, of talk therapy or neurofeedback or, or 
psychiatric medicine. And, and that's really not my space. Um, right. you mentioned I'm, I'm a nutrition guy, right? right. I'm, a, I'm a capital G generalist and yes. uh, integrative medicine person. So this isn't, uh, I, I, I treat it because it comes in. I treat it because I, I need to and I'm asked to help those individuals, um, but certainly not uh, a specialty. So I'm sort of splitting it, right? I'm really talking about the biochemical factors as it relates to anxiety and depression. Um, why does it, uh, yeah, I guess I can't, I'm not the best person to speak to exactly the rise, um, but I mean, look around. Like we're in a very stressful time in the world. It's sort of this precarious position that we all face on a daily basis. Um, just between traffic and lack of sleep and being right. on the internet all the time, it's yeah, it, right. it cause for concern, right? Um, but in terms of uh, the underlying mechanisms, and uh, I guess to add to my disclosure, I have to add that I'm a really simple person. Like I've gone to school a lot, but <laughs> when you shed it all away, like I'm just like a I need to know like nuts and bolts stuff in order to understand it for myself if I have to teach it. And so um, when I'm seeing patients come in with anxiety or depression and, and right, there's versions of that too. There's a major depression. Um, there's moderate depression. There's mild depression, anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, burnout. Like there's, everything's a spectrum. Uh -huh. And so if I had to sort of like make sense of it, I had to make it simple. So I really created, and I didn't create it, right. I'm, I'm stealing from all the brilliant people who've done tons of research, either in basic sciences or, or clinical sciences. And I just identified what I consider four um, pillars of the treatment of these overlapping conditions. Okay, perfect. Walk, walk us through. Okay. So um, the first one I, I routinely call cortisol management, but you may want to refer to it as um, like HPA axis dysfunction, depending on which literature you read. Um, <laughs> you know, ele elevated cortisol is one thing, but there's the timing of production of cortisol. So anyway, that's sort of a, a blanket statement about HPA axis dysregulation. So that's sort of my first pillar and I'll, I'll name them all so we can follow along and then I'll tell you about them and then I'll tell it to you again is uh, the, the next one is probably the most popular one. Um, and that's just neurotransmitter signaling. Uh, essentially almost all of our medications for anxiety and depression are based around this theory. And so that's, it still creates a pillar. Um, its contribution in where this all fits is probably less so than in conventional practice, but uh, it's still, it still gets a pillar. Uh, the next one is I'm referring to as the, the thyroid area. So the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis is another modifiable pillar that we can uh, work with. And then the last one, which is the, the deepest of all holes, which I know that you've spent a lot of time interviewing experts on, is the component of inflammation. Right. And if I can sort of sort through, if I can look at a person and work with them and hear their story and evaluate labs or, um, or questionnaires, I can kind of figure out which of those four are important for them and which ones can I maybe rule out a little bit? Which ones do I have to pay less attention to? What's already been tried? Um, and this just gives me structure. Uh -huh. Um. Let, let me just, I have to ask you, uh, questionnaires you might be using, 
anyone you care to mention or is there a questionnaire we can share with our readers that might be useful something you're using in practice our yeah, readers our listeners okay i have perfect. a handful so it's like a, a choose your own adventure um the ones that are the oldest and sort of used most in literature but require observation of the patient during the interaction are the Hamilton scales. So there's the Hamilton anxiety rating scale and the Hamilton depression rating scale. So HAMA and HAMD, and those are useful, but you just, you have to pay attention to the patient, how they're interacting with you, how they're answering questions. They're brief and they don't take long to observe, but those do require observation. So oftentimes while interesting in research, they aren't used that much in practice. Um, two of the ones that I prefer are the just the patient health questionnaire or the PHQ-9 mm -hmm. and the Beck Depression Inventory. Beck Depression Inventory is sort of, it's a little bit bigger, it's uh, 20 plus questions and gets to um, a little bit more of, of really what's happening for uh, depression. And, and don't let the name fool you, it, it definitely helps us understand someone's anxious state as well. Okay. Okay, perfect. Now, uh, so you so you've you've done the intake. You've used these questionnaires. Um, you're you're thinking about your pillars concurrently. I mean, do you do you do you want to talk to me about uh, your next steps there? I mean, what you know, what kind of labs you're using to assess your the various pillars, or just kind of how you're how are you putting your thinking together? around this as far as assessment goes? Sure, actually before I get to the pillars, I sort of do a, I run a panel of essentially what I would call standard-ish labs, labs that I can order from LabCorp or Quest, um, and things that might have already been run. Um, so things like a thyroid panel, and I don't have to get as fancy with a thyroid panel, TSH, uh, T4, T3, um, probably autoantibodies just to rule out uh, Hashimoto's. Um, are, those are going to help me like lean towards, okay, now I need to pay attention to that thyroid pillar. Or for neurotransmitters, um, I'm generally in a conventional lab. I'm not looking, I'm not asking for a you know, plasma level of serotonin. But um, what is helpful are things like methylmalonic acid mm. um, for B12 or yes. erythrocyte magnesium, erythrocyte right. zinc and homocysteine. And then I also run a, a ferritin iron panel to get me down the path of maybe there's a micronutrient concern towards neurotransmitters. Yep. Perfect. You read my mind. Cool. <laughs> um, okay. So that is anything else on your standard panel? I mean, I'm yeah, I, I, yeah, I do sort of what I call the inflammation list. And okay. so C-reactive protein, I also run CEDRATE if they're overweight. Um, I look at vitamin D, uh, fasting blood sugar, and hemoglobin A1C. And if I'm feeling frisky, I'll run a fasting insulin as well. Good. Okay. And, okay, so keep going. Is that, I mean, do you move into specialty tests or do you start with the information you got from that? I mean, walk us through. Yeah, if there's, so I think this is a, a bit of a, a chiropractic thing, but I'm, I'll, I'll lean on it. Um, Clarence Gonstead used to say, you know, find it, fix it, and leave it alone. If there's, if there's anything to find on that panel, like we start working on that almost immediately. So methylmalonic acid runs high, like, you know, let's, let's do uh, a nice bolus of B12. So anyway, so that's, that's sort of like subset 
you know, step one a, and, uh, but once we get there, the, I do like moving into the functional tests. I think that, uh, urinary organic acids are lovely mm -hmm. to provide some more detail on, uh, neurotransmitter metabolism. And so there's a handful of markers that we can look for that gives us clues at least to that. Um, and then I'm concurrently running, uh, I, I prefer the dried urinary hormone assessments yeah. because I think that's really useful. And uh, it's a it's a bit of a pattern. So a patient comes in and I'm like, well, you got your blood tests. Those are off and running. And now we're going to do a couple urine tests. And so there's a nice rhythm to that. Those take a little bit longer to come back. So oftentimes I have to start treatment um, before that really, before I get those answers back. Can I just ask you, are you, so you're doing the dried urine um, assessment for sex hormones plus cortisol and you're looking are you looking at the cortisol awakening response yep that's that's my that's my baby that's what I'm really paying attention to those okay. that first sample and so I actually coach the patient pretty clearly on making sure that that um, first sample of uh, we'll call it hormones are is done between 30 and 45 minutes post uh, awakening. Oftentimes yeah. people like to use that first morning void and that is recommended in some cases. Um, if they can be awake for those for 30 minutes or so before that really gives me the best picture when cortisol really should be at its peak level. Okay. And what labs are you using? So that's, I, I just use Dutch test. That's the, and uh, the, um, the complete panel. And your organic acids? I know Dutch does have organics, but are you ordering above and beyond that any particular panel? Yeah, there's a handful that you get kind of alongside of that, but I, I like using Genova for organic acids tests. Okay. All right. Perfect. Okay. So keep, keep going on your journey with us on the pillars. Yeah, absolutely. So once I have a runoff on those tests, now I have to, I have to get somewhere pretty fast, right? Because um, in conventional treatment, a lot of the SSRIs or SNRIs take three weeks or so to work. Oftentimes, uh, primary care doesn't modulate those um, doses for six or eight weeks. And so, if they're on that path, you know, they're, it takes a year or more to kind of figure out which medication works for them and, and why. And oftentimes, if they're seeing me and asking me for help, they've already been down that path. And so, I want to. I feel bad for them. Like that's, it, this is awful. I don't want you to suffer any longer. Is there anything that we can do to kind of get things going in the right direction quickly? And uh, luckily I, I have something that I, I really like and it's a, a combination of adaptogenic botanicals. And um, the one that I, I have grown to love is rhodiola. Mm -hmm. um, rhodiola has now evidence that shows improvement uh, usually within about three days wow. so you can know if you're on the right track using rhodiola and there's some dosing idiosyncrasies with rhodiola but all in all i i kind of love it so i use that in combination with ashwagandha and eleuthero okay all right can you mention a product that you really that you're using one of your go-to yeah, the product i use is is from integrative therapeutics called hpa adapt mm -hmm. okay and uh, that's a it's dosed at two capsules twice a day, typically. Um, some people 
achieve benefit with just a, a single dose of uh, two capsules a day. And, and some people could go a little bit higher if we needed to. Um, and that's still within safe ranges of those herbs. All right. All right. Perfect. And so you, you might, so regardless of underlying etiology, cause you're still on the journey in evaluation, um, you can start them on HPA adapt and you may expect to see some kind of favorable turnaround in as little as three days. Yeah, we should see some positive change. And so actually we rerun those questionnaires that I asked. So I'll have them do the back depression inventory again at day three, five, and seven. Wow. Okay, good. Um, okay, so, so keep rolling through on your journey. Yeah, so in sort of in context of the pillars, I, I sort of put that one as, well, there's a lot of, you know, herbs do a lot of things and there's kind of neat because they have pleiotropic effects. But uh, so there's some effect probably to neurotransmitter signaling. Um, having ashwagandha in there probably has a pretty nice impact on thyroid function. Um, and there's probably some, some impact to HPA axis um, regulation. Obviously, that's the design of the product. Um, so I'm actually sort of just empirically hitting three out of the four pillars. And if they're on um, a solid anti-inflammatory diet and there's nothing in their environment that's outwardly inflammatory, um, you know, we're, we're already on the path. Uh, really yeah. well while we're waiting for those tests to come back. Good, good. So, it, it, you know, I want to say it, even though it goes without saying, you're doing a full functional approach here. So not, it's a network, we're kind of, we're zeroing in on specifics around anxiety and depression, but, you know, in your whole journey and working with an individual, you're dialing in their diet and looking at food reactions, taking care of their gut and doing all of those pieces concurrently, would you say? Exactly. And, okay. uh, and that's just sort of a par for the course, right? I can't be a good nutritionist and, and not pay attention to, you know, food intolerances and sensitivities. I can't be a good nutritionist and have them have poor pancreatic function or, um, or bowel overgrowth. Like I just can't right. do it. So that's, that's getting done alongside of this as well. Um, so sometimes it's a fairly robust approach. Um, I like to say it's simple because it's just like it's just four pillars, but like I said, that inflammation, it's, it's a deep, deep hole. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. I know. Well, it's, I, I, it's, I appreciate that you've distilled it to four pillars in, in thinking about these specific conditions, but that you're doing that layering on a full functional approach. Um, I've got a lot of questions for you. And yeah. I, do you want to continue to kind of peel back your approach? Or, I mean, I want to talk about um, at some point, can, you know, co-managing when somebody is on medication or, you know, what you might be doing differently, but where do you, do you, do you have more to say on your approach and then we can, I can ping you on some more nitty gritty questions? I guess there's, there's, I have a ton of like research that I'd like to share. Um, yes. I can share that with you so you can just share it with everybody um, later um, because it's, I, I do want to back up what I'm saying, right? Um, however, uh, in the interest of time and all of those important questions that you have coming, uh, the one thing that I really want people to understand is that, um, so I, I mentioned that I run C-reactive protein and if they're overweight, I run ESR. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge is, and this is, it's actually kind of new and cool research, is that um, that can be misleading. 
Um, in major depressive disorder, uh, C-reactive protein is almost always elevated. It's very, it would be uncommon to see that be in the normal range and normal range wow. medically is up to like three. Um, my range is a little bit tighter. So I say it has to be less than one, but regardless that can be essentially negative. We can have a normal range for that and there could still be primary or excuse me, central inflammation. So C-reactive protein is well known to be stimulated by cytokines produced in the liver and is a, we know it's a good marker for peripheral inflammation, but to measure central inflammation, um, we really would need something like cerebrospinal fluid, TNF-alpha, and uh, I just don't think somebody walking into my office is going to want to do a spinal tap to see if that's positive. Um, in, in those really significant disease states, we, like I said, we see it positive, but if somebody has moderate depression or dysthymia or burnout, it may be negative. So don't let that fool you, clinicians, is what I'm saying. Um, you can either assume it's there or um, just treat as if. Like yeah. we see, we see super neat stuff. Um, and I, I don't say it's super neat um, practically, but from a research perspective, like we know that things like corticosteroids can not only reduce inflammatory markers, but can ease depression. We know that NSAIDs have a lift effect. Um, you can't take naproxen sodium for the rest of your life to relieve depression, but that's that's useful information, right? Yeah. So um, I take that to say, all right, even if it's negative. I still may treat the inflammatory response or, or dig further into that. You're assuming inflammation is happening here. I am even, assuming. Even with your standard markers being within normal limits. That's what I'm saying. Do you think quinolinic acid on the, on the Genova organic acids panel is useful at, at suggesting CNS inflammation? Possibly. I mean, there's a... Um, I would say, I would say likely. And it's sort of yeah. one of those things that it's like, if I have any evidence, I'm going to, I'm going to lean on it. Um, right. So if that's abnormal, then yes, I'm going to do it. There's actually a really nice paper um, and it was written or it was published in 2016. Uh, Kohler uh, was the primary author on it and it's just titled inflammation and depression and the potential for anti-inflammatory treatment, which really details all of this out. Um, so I can make sure you have that. I think it's a free article on, PubMed, but that helps with this uh, a lot. And it's sort of like gluten sensitivity, right? If I have any suggestion that gluten's a problem, no matter which marker it is, like we're going to, we're going to rely on that. Yeah. You're doing a gluten elimination. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes sense. So you're turning over all the biochemical metabolic stones and going, rooting out inflammation. Um, and yeah, it makes sense. Uh, okay, so keep going uh, in, in you know, whatever direction you want to with regard to treatment, and then I'll just kind of ping you. You've talked about HPA ADAPT, which is a, a great product. Um, what else might you be doing initially or once you've defined a pillar, you know, talk about some of your specific interventions? Sure, so when I have, uh because uh, again, this leans on me being a simple-minded person in some degree. Um, I, I'm really, the symptoms I'm paying closest attention to are really things like agitation, excessive worrying, 
restlessness because they both sort of fit in the criteria of both anxiety and depression. And the nice thing about uh, non-pharmacologic approaches is that I don't have to, I don't have to choose sides. Like yes. I can, I can treat both almost simultaneously. Yes. Um, the, the nice thing here is that um, when I split this down further, I have to think about the needs of the patient and the needs of the patient. So patient preferences, are, are they having acute problems? Like, are they having like spikes of anxiety or lows of depression that sort of need to be treated on a PRN basis. And they, they happen on a periodic basis, but it's not all the time. Okay. Well, that's kind of one category that I have to pay attention to. Um, is it somebody who just, they're on the verge of disability or maybe are disabled and they need an aggressive approach and yes. they need everything thrown at them that I can think of, regardless of sort of which one's making the biggest difference. We can figure that out later. Yes. Um, I also have those that group um, that are at risk. Like, and quick story. Um, the last patient uh, that I had with anxiety, she'd been working at the same place for 26 years. She's uh, she has loyalty to the company, but she got a new boss. It wasn't really. It's not going that well. She doesn't really work well with the new coworker. She's overloaded. Um, now that's a person that I can't take away her job stress. I can't tell her to stay. I can't tell her to find a new job. That's not my role. It's not my expertise. But what I can say is you're really at risk for, um, for developing one of these problems and needing pharmacotherapy. So let's put you in that bucket and treat you as an at risk person. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's just a fourth group. And this is across many different aspects, but I call it the, uh, the minimalist somebody who doesn't like to take a lot of things. They want to work. They want to move into things slowly. Maybe, um, you know, money is a concern. And so they don't want to take a lot of different products. And so that's another group. That's probably the, where I would start for by and large, if they didn't fit into those other buckets. Okay. Okay. Yep. So as I mentioned, we, and I'll just, I'll tell you that one cause now I've let into it. Um, I, we've already started HP adapt yeah. And I've started at two capsules daily. And if they have a good response to that, if after three days in their first Beck depression inventory, they're, they're seeing signs of, of progress, that's where we stay. That's fine. Just two caps. That's half the recommended dose. If they're not seeing it within those three days, we increase it to two, um, to two twice a day. And the reason for that is because the, the one study on burnout that was published um, just in the last year on this particular rhodiola um, showed signs of that at 400 milligrams and there's 400 milligrams of it in four capsules. So in order to sort of hit the evidence, you have to get to four a day. Um, so that's, that's part one. If they have elevated cortisol, trouble sleeping, trouble staying asleep, waking up groggy, I'm adding in cortisol manager, another integrative therapeutics product. Um, that product also contains ashwagandha. So now I'm getting ashwagandha from HP Adapt and Cortisol Manager. And so now I'm really um, flexing on the thyroid and, and ashwagandha effect. There was a, a nice study looking at subclinical hypothyroidism and ashwagandha at a, a fairly robust dose, 600 milligrams per day. And uh -huh. so now I'm, I'm getting both buttons. So I can wow. start that one right away as well. And then the, the third product that I pay attention to 
in this minimalist approach is a product called Lavella or oh, WS1265. Yeah. In the literature, it's known as Selexan. So if you go to PubMed and type in Selexan, you get a number of hits and that's the material that I'm talking about. And for the minimalist approach, I just start at one soft gel a day. Um, but most of the time I would start at two soft gels a day. And, and I've written about why I like two soft gels a day better. Yes. In fact, we have a blog on that, folks, if you're interested. Um, you can track that down on our site and we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, okay. Keep going, Corey. And, and then that's, and then I make sure that there's an anti-inflammatory diet in place. And if there's not, or if we still think that there's something going on, or remember I said, I kind of assume that there's anti-inflammation. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm choosing either, um, uh, fish oil, if they're not taking it already, I'll increase their dose if they're already taking it, or I'll add in um, our colloidal curcumin product. Yeah, and I just want to add, you know, if you if somebody comes back, frankly, hypothyroid, uh, or any of those micronutrients you've already evaluated for are abnormal, you're, you're, you may go beyond, I'm assuming you probably are considering uh, thyroid hormone and you're obviously got them on any of the micronutrients that they need. Is that correct? That's correct. The only um, caveat to that would be if they have subclinical thyroid markers, but they don't have many of the symptoms, um, then I'm going to lean on treating that naturally. There's good. pretty good evidence to say, let's normalize the TSH um, if it's outside of range and they're having symptoms, um, like constipation or significant fatigue, um, now you got to tease that out, right? Is, is that fatigue coming from the anxiety, depression? Is it coming from the, the thyroid? So it's not as easy as it sounds, but the decision tree is pretty black and white on that with symptoms. Um, I'm recommending thyroid medication. Okay. Okay. Good. And otherwise, if you're just seeing sort of functionally abnormal thyroid, you might, you might just go with ashwagandha. Yes, that's, that's what I would do. Okay, perfect. Uh, okay, so this is for, this is for somebody who's, this, this is for the, I don't want to take a lot of supplements individual. And incidentally, at any state, at any point in time, you're going to just level them off where they are when they're, when they've turned around. Yeah, ideally, um, in, in any supplement, I mean, this is across the board, I always want them to be taking as little as possible. Yeah, right. So we're always doing trials of discontinuation. My students get irritated by me saying that, when did you start the trial of discontinuation? Oh, I haven't started it yet. Well, let's, let's start that. Um, one of my favorite phrases, and I think it's useful to sort of, the, the, end of, the end goal, right, isn't to be on supplements. The end goal is to be healthy and, and live the life that you want to live. So yes. um, if you can discontinue them, that's fantastic. But I sort of have to get the effect that I want first. Yes, right. Really good point. I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, it's easy to kind of continue in the quagmire of too many supplements. I mean, I've, sure. I've, I've fallen victim to that myself, or I've actually instituted, I've, I have patients who have been victims to that when I haven't been attentive enough in the tapering process. Sure. Um, okay, so then let's talk about when you need to um, kind of turn the volume up, or what are you doing acutely? Oh, so acutely, I mean, this is, these are 
rigorous uh, recommendations. So uh, kind of bear with me in acute anxiety, because frankly, acute anxiety happens a whole lot more than acute depression. Um, so I'll just spend time on that. That's when I love the high dose fish oil. I have no problem um, going, you know, the six gram um, or higher uh, recommendations for EPA and DHA. Wow. And is that based on your read in the literature? Was there some kind of interesting study or studies that pinged you to do that? How did you, yeah, actually, how did you start doing uh, that? I, yeah, uh, there was a, a study in bipolar that I believe was 10 grams. And uh, I, I don't have to go that high oftentimes, but it gave me enough um, confidence to use high doses. And how long did they need to be on it before they saw benefit? Actually, we see relatively acute benefits. Sometimes people feel better within a few days. At least it takes the edge off, which is what I'm after, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, trying to, I'm not trying to fix acute anxiety and make it all better. I'm trying to make sure that it doesn't get away from them. Yeah, okay. So this is something that for, for people who have acute episodes of anxiety, would you use it in panic disorder? I think that's a, a reasonable place to use it. Okay. Okay, so you're going to maintain them on that daily dose, daily high dose, and then you're going, your expectation is that you're going to see those really deep dips into significant anxiety leveled off. That's what I'm hoping for, yep. And, okay. we, can, and we can check ourselves, right, um, to know when we can, can discontinue or, or reduce that dose by just doing a red blood cell fatty acid analysis. Those are simple and inexpensive enough to, to get our head on straight. Right, right. And you're also doing all of the other functional work too. So all of these together will give you some indication. Well, what about when you're working with somebody who's, you know, chronic um, or really struggling with severe depression? Yeah. Um, and, and to be fair, this is really where the, the SSRIs shine. Um, major depression is definitely a uh, we've seen benefit with that, with, with those medications. So I'll assume that they're already taking it, which means I need to be a little bit more aware of which uh, supplements I'm recommending. Um, so things like um, the, the Selexan material, the Lavella product, mm -hmm. virtually has uh, no interactions that we're uh, aware of. Um, it's really clean. Uh, cleanly metabolized through cytochrome P450 pathways, not having any major interactions with uh, at least the five major pathways. Um, so that's something that I know that I can use. And if it's prettiest, if I need to be aggressive, that's when I started those two soft gels daily. Okay. Okay. So for this, so for somebody who's being co-managed pharmaceutically, uh, or with pharmaceuticals, you're starting with Lavella. Correct. The only time that I would be a little bit hesitant is it sort of depends on the medication, right? This is where it all gets dicey. Um, I, if they're taking, I'll be really clear, if they're taking an SSRI or an SNRI, I feel confident with Lavella. Um, this material doesn't have the same mechanism as um, as a benzodiazepine, it doesn't have the same mechanism of gabapentin or pregbalin, which is Lyrica. Um, however, it's kind of, it has an influence on GABA. Uh, so if they're taking one of those 
classes of medications, um, that might be, give me just a slight pause, but it's not a stop. Okay. You might start them at a lower dose. I might start at a lower dose or, um, we might uh, work with whoever their prescriber was for those medications to see, can they be reducing their dose or work with them on, on, do they need what they need right now? Or is it, uh, can we work with something a little bit easier? Okay, good. Are you using um, ashwagandha, rhodiola? I mean, some of these others go-tos or um, do you consider those to be potentially contraindicated? Yeah, so the ashwagandha really doesn't have much of a, a medication concern. Um, within those other adaptogenic herbs, uh, the one that probably does have some actual pause would be rhodiola. Um, there was a, a case um, that suspected that there was interaction between rhodiola and escitalopram. Um, and I believe there was another one with paroxetine. So these are out of the out of all the uses of these herbs and these medications, there appears to be two cases where uh, people didn't feel very well using, at least reported in the literature, um, some SSRI and rhodiola interaction. So that is something that I'm aware of. It's not a full stop, but it's a, it's a pause. Okay. If you're going to use it, start really low, pay close attention. I mean, are you, when you say they didn't feel well, are you, you're not, are you talking serotonin syndrome? I mean, what are you, what, what did they, what were their issues? Yeah. I don't think either one of them um, qualified as serotonin syndrome, but it was probably what you call like pre. Um, I actually have it in front of me so I can uh, mention it. Um, it was a tach uh, tacharrhythmia. So that. Okay. So uh, a change in, in heart rate um, is probably uh, the major concern, but they didn't classify that as serotonin syndrome. Okay. All right. So worth paying attention to. And if you're at all uncomfortable, you know, start with Lavella. Yes. If you're working with an SSRI or SNRI. All right. Fabulous. This is extremely useful. Um, well, you know, what about actually tapering pharmaceuticals? Because that's a huge goal of patients who come to my practice. Yeah, um, I actually have to sort of a little bit bow out of that question only because, um, number one, I recommend that it's the prescriber yes, that right. unprescribes it or tapers. And I also recommend that uh, somebody who doesn't have prescription rights, uh, you know, not, not intervene with that. But the package inserts which I know that most people throw away or, or sometimes don't even get are all available online um, through the FDA access. And so um, I would taper according to the package insert. There's actually some, you know, cause they've done, there's some literature and there's some um, experience there in doing it, but that is definitely an art that I would leave to uh, the prescribing practitioner. Well, let me restate the question. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not suggesting that you yourself taper, but when a patient comes to you with the goal and they've got their prescribing physicians buy-in, how, how might you participate in that process with the interventions you're using? Yeah. Um, I guess we, we learned a little bit with this, um, in the SSRI and 5-HTP conversation that had been happening about, um, starting a low dose of the, um, of the supportive product or the complementary product. Um, and then 
tapering down maybe uh, every one to three weeks by 50% or so, which is also in line with the package insert. Um, and while tapering down, sometimes that complementary product can be, um, can be also increased. Um, the rate at which it's increased is, is really dependent upon the person's tolerance. Right. Okay. Okay. And again, you're doing all the concurrent work. Are you using 5-HTP much with your patients? We haven't pretty touched rarely. on it. Okay. Um, yeah, pretty rarely as a standalone. Um, and actually, there's, there's a selfish reason for that. Um, they've probably already tried it, right? Mm. And uh, I, I lose all credibility when I'm like, oh, I have this great thing. It's called 5-HTP. And they're like, you don't think I've tried 5-HTP and St. John's Wort and, you know, like a handful of the more obvious ones. Um, So I've left it off the protocol. If I happen to come across somebody that actually hasn't, um, then there, there may be some times, especially if I have good organic acids data saying there's insufficient uh, serotonin production or, or excess metabolism that, uh, that could be key. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, so there may be a place for it. But I think these sound like these are the, the interventions you've mentioned thus far. Um, well, the the adaptogens certainly seem more root cause, especially if you're getting some evidence in the, in the Dutch panel or elsewhere. So talk, so I, I know the research on Selexin is actually really pretty cool. I was looking at it not too long ago. Just mention to me some of the some of the favorite stu- standout studies, and not just the Selexin, aka Lavella, but you know any of these things that we're talking about. Yeah, well, it's easy to talk about the Selexin studies because they're they're kind of awesome. Um, it's it's yeah, pretty bold when a uh, yeah. a non pharmaceutical um, gets sort of uh, compared directly to a, a standard of care medication, well, and many. so the. The first one was uh, was lorazepam, so brand name Ativan, um, 0.5 milligrams, and compared to Selexan at, at one one soft gel or 80 milligrams per day, and uh, essentially over the course of uh, the study, we saw fairly similar results um, without the significant side effects of the benzodiazepine. So that was sort of the first cut at that, uh, human clinical trial, uh, placebo controlled, all the good stuff that you're looking for in a research study. And then more recently, um, that same material was studied against paroxetine. So brand name Paxil, 20 milligrams. And this is a much larger study. This was, um, 539, um, subjects and it was, uh, several arms. So there was a placebo arm, um, a low dose Selexan arm, a higher dose Selexan arm and the paroxetine arm. So we really got, we really got to understand, um, the dose dependency of Selexan. And we also got to understand how it, uh, how it was effective, uh, compared, comparing the two. And uh, essentially what the answer is, is that Selexan, um, higher dose had the best effect, uh, followed by the lower dose Selexan, followed by the paroxetine, followed by placebo. So it, it really outdid the, uh, the standard. And how about the time to benefit? Yeah. So, um, in the studies, they, they were seeing for sure benefit within four weeks. The reality was that they were, um, noting, but not being, uh, not having great objective findings because right objective findings are hard in this patient base. Um, 
So within a week is usually the expectation of change. Uh, some people report almost an immediate change. Frankly, I think that that is, um, that might be product combined with placebo effect mm-hmm. uh, to have an immediate effect. The one thing that is really interesting and actually is we sort of refer to it as a side effect is eructation or, or burping. Oh up. yes, that's right. <laughs> the lavender oil burp. <laughs> Yeah, and I was actually speaking with some of the scientists in in Germany this March, and uh, I said, "Well, what about that? Is there any way we can, you know, is there something we could do to the soft gel, or like, what can we do to to help with that?" And they said, "Actually, that might be part of the mechanism. We know huh. from an aromatherapy perspective, lavender huh. has a, a huge stimulation to olfaction, and so as that happens, and it is transient. After a few days, it goes away." Um, but that might be part of why it starts to work pretty soon. And so we don't want that to go away. We want that to happen. And so patients often will complain, uh, even though I told them it could happen, they say, Oh, I don't like it. Cause I'm, you know, I'm burping this lavender up all the time. And I say, well, you know, the, the side effects of benzodiazepines are, are pretty vast. And the side effect for, for this material is that you burp up flowers and right. I would do that any That's day. Right. That's right. That's right. I actually did have one patient complain about it and it really, you know, it just isn't, it, it's, it's just not a bad side effect. I thought it was kind of funny that, um, that she complained. She got over it. Needless to say. Yeah. Um, I actually have a, a really recent page. Sorry to tell the yeah, story. Keep but going, keep going. Love, I love the campfire. Um, it, I had a patient who I, I recommended, He's a, he runs his own business and he started on two soft gels a day, had the burp burping effect. And it, after three days it was still there. And so he was really irritated by it. Um, and he's like, I was taking it with food and I, I took it at night just to try to mix it up and see if I could change it. And it's still there. Is there anything I could do? Um, we just dropped it back to one. And so he did the 80 milligrams and I said, let's do that for three days. Um, I would say mix mixing that transient effect of that eructation plus um, reducing the dose. He had no problems those three days. And after those three days, he bounced back to the two soft gels a day and again, had no problems. So sometimes it's just tweaking that dose so slightly um, and working with the patient to, to get where they need to go. Have you, would you ever go above two gel caps or no? We, we have uh, practitioners that report going higher than that. Um, if I lean on the studies, they, they've never gone higher than that in human clinical trials. So I tend to stay there, but um, I know that there's really virtually no safety challenges with going higher. Okay. 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 Good to know. Um, anything else? So I was just, you know, if thinking about some things that I've used acutely in practice. I mean, I, I love what you've presented so far. I just, I think it's pretty creative and it's, you know, and you're getting good outcome and, you know, the rationale is sound and we will link to all of the um, research studies that Dr. Schuler's mentioned, but what about like using GABA or theanine, SAMI, you know, some of those other um, nutraceuticals that, that are commonly used? Yeah. In the, in the acute um, protocol, I'll, I'll call it, um, I do recommend oral GABA and I'll go as high as um, like, uh, well, about three grams a day. So, oh, okay. Um, high. Yeah, that, that is high. So 750, um, twice a day or 750, uh, two 750s twice a day, um, seems to have a, 
a good effect. Uh, and I know there's lots of questions about does GABA cross the blood right. brain barrier right. is it or blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. and <laughs> my report on that is I kind of don't care. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Because people, people respond, people respond. So what am yeah. I going to do? Yeah. Um, and, and with that, metabolite, I, that's, you know, the argument, you know, maybe, sure. I don't know, is, it, is there a secondary metabolite that does and yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, secondary metabolite, is it a signaling system? I mean, we right. can, we can nerd out all day on that, but I don't have an answer. I just know that people feel better. So that's, uh, that's good. And then I also use robust doses of magnesium. Even if I don't have mm -hmm. the red blood cell magnesium, right, either I didn't run it or I don't have it back yet. Um, I'm going to just about bowel tolerance, um, if not getting to bowel tolerance with magnesium. What kind of dosages? Um, so it, probably in the eight to 1200 milligrams is where most people see that bowel tolerance. Um, I know some people go a little bit higher, but I don't like to stay that high for that long. I also tend to use the magnesium um, potassium chelate. And okay. so I have to be a little bit aware of medications that they're on. If they're like, sometimes there's sneaky medications like spironolactone for acne in a PCOS patient. Oh shoot, that's potassium sparing. I can't give right. that. So then I move to like magnesium glycinate um, and magnesium glycinate. I always have to go a little bit higher just because it is more bioavailable. Um, you go a little bit higher or lower, you mean? I actually go a little bit higher because I still want to reach bowel tolerance. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. You're looking at, at transit time with that. Okay, perfect. Yep. Um, what else do I want to ask you? So you use magnesium glycinate, the potassium magnesium combination. What are they, what are the, what's the counter ion in those? Um, yeah. I knew you asked me something. No, I don't know. If <laughs> that is it? Is it an integrative therapeutics product? Yeah, and it's it's one of the it's one of the Krebs um, counter okay. ions. So okay. I'm gonna say like I'm gonna guess and say succinate or something like that. But okay, you don't know. I don't know. People can if people are interested, they can just go over there and 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 look at the product. You know, the reason I ask you is because we've been talking about magnesium um, bioavailability in our clinical development program lately. We've just been pinging each other on yeah. it. And um, when I was writing the magnesium section in the laboratory evaluations textbook, at the time there was really good research on aspartate. So. Mm -hmm. And actually, magnesium lactate, which I never see, uh, but those 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 were the ones that came out. So I was just just curious about that. Um, all right, let's talk. So I think we've covered a lot. It's been really helpful. And then just circling back to inflammation, you know, you're pretty versed on turmeric. I mean, you could use turmeric, I think, as an antidepressive agent in somebody who's really particularly inflamed but i want to I, I i just you know what do you think about that as an idea have you done that is there any research on it and then i want to just ping you on how to determine quality turmeric sure um i'll i'll lean on the on this story and it's recently published and it's sort of a, a secondary outcome but it's got me super jazzed about it so i want to share it <laughs> okay um, but but uh, Gary Small and his team at UCLA, so Gary Small is a geriatric psychiatrist, which typically means he's looking at things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, and uh, he recruited for a study that looked at um, essentially non-Alzheimer's, 
uh, dementia, and he excluded those individuals uh, with major depression. And so um, they don't have Alzheimer's and they don't have depression. And he studied um, he studied turmeric and just looking at things like memory and cognition. And then he also did some imaging studies because he's a bit of an imaging guy. Um, not a bit. He's very much an imaging guy. And so um, the, it lasted 18 months, which is a pretty long duration study, which is kind of a failure oftentimes of most of our, our uh geriatric psych psychiatric type of studies they're usually not long enough because we think you know this is sort of a lifelong disease um and so we have to try to we have to do these longer studies but people are suffering so how do we shorten the time on the study anyway 18 yeah. months is still long is what i'm yeah. saying yeah. and uh, what he found was that even though they were excluded people with depression he saw depression scores go down and he actually used the, oh, the interesting. depression inventory to measure that. And wow. so he thought that dropped by about 41%. Jeez. So they so, weren't clinically diagnosed, but obviously they were mildly depressed. Yeah. And, and so he kind of went on to say, you know, that might actually be some of the, the benefit that we saw to the, the cognitive um, things. It, it doesn't explain the improvements in imaging that we saw, but it might, cause we know about Alzheimer's and sundowning and, um, you know, putting people in a solarium um, it, every day is, is a really good idea. Getting them sun and uh, lifting their mood that way is of benefit um, to their symptoms, but it doesn't change anything with imaging. So he saw changes in imaging as well. So he's like, this is a partial explanation of why this could happen. And actually, maybe further research would go into more, at least moderate or major depression and, uh, and this dose. How did they how did they measure memory? Do you know? Do you remember? Yeah, so it was a variety, it was the the Bushki uh, test, uh, the trail making test. Um, I don't think they did for cognitive battery. I don't think they did the clock making one, although that's my favorite. Uh -huh. um, but I know the trail making test was was a primary indication of um, uh, of memory and cognition. Okay, and they saw significant improvement they saw significant improvements. Jeez, that's really, really cool. So what were they dosing and what were they using? Yeah, so it was, it was, uh, it was two capsules of Therakirman per day. Just two capsules. And that's actually not even high dose. No. Um, in clinical practice, oftentimes we dose much higher than that. We might do 3x that dose um, for an inflammatory response. Um, and and w whether listeners have heard about Therakirman or not, Therakirman has this benefit of being bioavailable, better bioavailability and, and uh, all sorts of uh, neat things in that, in those terms. Um, but that sort of is, it's not that it's old news, but now that we have an outcome of memory, cognition, depressive, like symptoms, like yeah. that's sort of, that's neater. That, cause yeah. that really matters to the person. And I think I just said the word neater. Sorry about <laughs> yeah, that. you did <laughs> on a live podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And it's a modest amount, two caps a day. Yeah, it's easy. Um, yes, so bioavailability. I guess, you know what I want to ping you about here is um, it's been said that probably some of the metabolites from um, curcumin uh, produced by the microbiome are significant to the action which would suggest that we want activity happening in the gut and not just full on absorption 
of the curcumin. Can you just, what do you, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, well, I, I have to share that it, that's, there's probably, there's probably truth to that, right? There's probably, that probably makes a difference. We know that uh, curcumin relies on a, a glucuronidase um, to be active. Um, so that's happening in the gut. Um, and so when we force turmeric or a turmeric extract that has different curcuminoids in it using certain um, synthetic drug delivery systems, that may be problematic. Like there's certain mm -hmm. things that just open up, um, you know, uh, tight junctions and, and allow things to go through, but they're not very selective. So other things go through as well. And if you force things into the bloodstream, that's a problem. If you allow things into the bloodstream, that's a different conversation. And I think that's really the conversation we're having with Theracurmin. It's finely milled, it's water dispersible. And that's what, that's what matters. Um, so that water dispersibility allows for some action in the GI system um, without forcing, it's not breaking the door down uh, into the bloodstream. Right, right. Got it. What are the other delivery uh, systems that you're concerned about? Can you mention them? I'm curious. Um, it, it, anything with really long names, um, I, I, I don't want to call anybody out in particular, uh, there, cause there's some really great also drug delivery systems or, or nutrient delivery systems, um, in curcumin. Um, but there's a handful that I would, if they, if they have a really long name or a sort of a proprietary name to it, sometimes there's, there's concerns about those delivery systems. Huh. Interesting. Okay, so then we'll have to do the sleuthing ourselves. I can't nail them down. Sorry, folks. Sorry. Um, uh, all right. It's my, it's my political answer, right? <laughs> Good. Nice dance. Well, yeah. listen, Corey, as always, it was really terrific to talk to you. You've just brought a lot of practical evidence-based information uh, to the podcast today, and I know you know, I just know it's going to be well received by uh, clinicians and just, you know, interested folks. So uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I, just, I hope some some patients are benefited uh, because this is really is an unmet medical need. And I yeah. think that sometimes us integrative practitioners feel a little bit overwhelmed with depression and anxiety. Yeah. And uh, but we still have to help where we can. So hopefully the structure helps a little bit. Absolutely. Thanks.